Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On The Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz, one of my regulars. He's back after uh, yeah, good to be back. traveling Europe. Right. <clears throat> well, I'm glad to have you back. And certified financial planner professionals Ryan Repko and David Rudy, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Good morning. You can call with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. Remember to add the 217 on that. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, good morning, guys. There's uh, plenty to talk about today. You know, the seesaw out there yesterday. Everybody's excited. The market was up a couple of percent. And today so far, is kind of wants to give it all back. It's, That's the third time it's happened where it's just been a one-day, uh, everyone thinks it's over, and then the next day it goes back to where it was. Yeah, it's it's a real seesaw market, but you know, uh, <clears throat> there's this one technical indicator. A lot of people follow a 200-day moving average, and if you look at the 50 most volatile down days ever, 47 of them are when you're below that, and that's where we are today. You just get a lot of volatility when the trend, the big trend turns. I, I've had a couple clients actually ask me about that, like, well, why why would the market be up two percent one day and then down two percent the next day? I'm curious what your response would be to that. Uh, randomness and noise and, you know, mass psychology, you know, in a very condensed period of time. But also, I think when the market is trying to find itself, it's like it's trying to figure out what it's going to be. Well, it knows what it's going to be when it grows up. But over the near term, I, I just think there's just a, a psych when you think about it, probably a lot of it's just due to psychology. What do you say, Fred? Well, I think probably some people are interested in protecting themselves and they take the opportunity when the market goes up and and – uh, that's obviously not uh, not a full explanation, but the other thing, which I think uh, is kind of funny, but maybe uh, tragic in another way, some people think that uh, once you reach the bear territory, the uh, downturn is over. And there's no guarantee yeah. that twenty uh, percent is the bottom of the uh, mm-hmm. of the decline. In fact, the average is somewhere around one third off. Once you you know, if you look at all the bear markets, stir them all together, add them, you know, thirty thirty three percent decline is pretty much what we would define as an average bear market. I feel like that's one of the challenges of being a financial advisor during bear markets is I've noticed it seems like everyone wants you to tell them when it's going to get better. Yeah. And it's like, well, the only honest answer is I don't know. I know that it will eventually, but it could be several months from now or it could be tomorrow when the recovery starts. And it's just I don't know. I but think th- but there is people a, want that certainty. There's a little more neediness when the markets are not behaving well. Uh, I've noticed well, I've been watching it for 39 years since the Dow was about 1,200. Um, and it's it's the same. I've told clients and people this. I said, it's the, the, my observation after, let's just call it four decades at helping people in retirement is it never changes. The psychology, there's, n- there's never any ability to seem, historical perspective seems to be like vitamin C. Is it vitamin C that you can't store in the body? I think, yes, I think, I think it is. So, yeah, so you have to take a dose frequently to keep your vitamin C levels up. I don't think there's that pill for long-term historical perspective. I think that's why a good advisor has to be that vitamin C for them and kind of just give them that constant. Um, I was talking to a client yesterday, and she said, well, I've been reading your Friday Blast. She goes, you know, one thing I can say is you're consistent in your message. I said, <laughs> <clears throat> I said well, you and your family have been reading them for about three of those four yeah. decades. I said, that's kind of like... Um, uh, Jason Zweig at Wall Street Journal, he writes 50 or 52 weekly columns. I probably get some time off, so let's just say 50 or so. And he said that's really, after all these years, he said, I just, at the beginning of the year, I have to figure out 50 different ways to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there is much more neediness um, when markets are not behaving than when they are behaving. When when things are going well, people just 
sort of go live their life and they just assume things are going well. Right, right. The COVID crisis really, it was going well, but it wasn't normal. And it's hard to explain why the market took off uh, during that crisis. So again, people assume that's the way things should be and, and, and everything they gained then is uh, something that they, they belongs to them and they shouldn't be able to have to lose it in the future. Well, if you look up prior to the last couple of years, you know, you had one of the stronger 10-year periods for this broad U.S. stock market. A really handsome returns, 16 17% a year for the S&P 500. <clears throat> Not counting this year, but you go back the past couple of years of the pandemic and, you know, the market had spectacular returns, like 30% a year roughly, or 25 30% a year. And I suspect, Fred, some of that might have been Fed-induced and pandemic-induced. And, you know, so there was kind of this asset inflation. And, and I think this is just the market's way of saying, hey, you're going to give some of it back for a while. We have some thinking to do, and we need to digest these massive gains that we've had. And I think it's really, I look at these corrections, so far correction, you could call it a bear market if you want, um, is, is natural and health restoring. I, maybe that's a naive way to look at it. But in my little brain, I've always felt like, <clears throat> look, I've been an entrepreneur for 40 years. And I know that when times are good as a business, you tend to get a little lazy and you don't fix stuff like it probably ought to be fixed. And you don't get rid of people like you might, sh maybe you should, but you know, everybody's doing fine. There's a lot of pain in making these changes. But then under the, uh, you know, the, the darkness of a bad economy or a crisis, businesses kind of go into a mode of let's get leaner and meaner. And it's my view that when the per permanent economic trend reasserts itself, these companies end up earning more because they're leaner and meaner at the mm -hmm. same sales revenues, they earn more money. So I, I, I've always felt like the capitalism, uh, the economy and the stock market are kind of a self-healing process in that way. Yeah, I, I I agree with you full heartedly on that. I think a lot of companies do. They come out stronger because they're they're put in this crucible to survive and, and they come out hopefully having learned some things that were inefficient in their process and in their, their just general operation that lets them grow. And I think on that comment of darkness, one thing I always think about too is when, you know, the question is, you know, when is this gonna get better? I always think about the comment, I don't know if it was uh Nick Murray writing that said something along the lines of, When is it getting better? Well when you know, you're in the pitch black and you get one you know, microscopic shade lighter than pitch black, things are getting better, but you can't really notice it until you're like really far removed from that point in time and things are actually really moving to better position. And Fred, a lot of people now are worried about recession. It comes up all the time and there's conflicting views on that, but <clears throat> much like when the stock market was really rallying in this pandemic and nobody yeah. could figure it out, uh, you know, as part of what I suspect's explaining a market, a broad U.S. market that's down, you know, 18% or so throughout this morning is the fact that they are discounting the future and they're trying right. to make sense of, hey, what's the future look like? And, 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 we, and so by the time it, we realize it's getting better for the economy, is that are we at risk of by then the market's yeah. already adjusted? Right. Yeah, it's kind of a strange world now because if you go back, I was thinking about my own view and you know, four months ago, my view was that we have this inflationary problem that's probably transitory, it will kind of correct itself. Two months ago, uh, it's probably not going to correct itself immediately. We do have a, a serious inflation problem, but the economy is still strong. And now, last month or so, we have the inflation problem, and the economy is roaring in one sense. Everything seems to be going well. But on the other hand, there's the expectation that, that, that that's not going to continue, that we do have a, a pretty high probability of a recession in, in mind. So, again, around town, I wanted to get my leaf blower fixed yesterday, you know, six weeks to repair a leaf blower. It only takes six <laughs> minutes to buy one, as it turns right, out. Right, that's why I bought one. <laughs> and, you know, everything you do, it looks like things are roaring in terms of the economy, yeah. but yet uh, there's something happening here that uh, probably is not uh, good news in the long run. Well, Warren Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, who I think is 98 or 99 years old, said, he wrote, I think in the newsletter, or said it there annually, said, if you're not confused about what's going on right now, you don't understand what's going on right now. And, and I thought that made sense. And, and kind of the corollary to that is if you think you know what's going on right now, you're probably psychotic yeah. uh, be, be, because you don't. But there is that real need for clients. They want to they hear when's it going to get better. And, and you know, the, the way I've always felt about it, I, I have to be careful how I say it because I don't want to be flippant about it. It's, it's not 
you know, it, when it gets better is not all that important, only that it does get better. Right. And even a, a most pessimistic client might, if I'll ask them, I'll say, well, where do you, do you think it'll be better in five years, Mr. or Mrs. Client? And almost to a person, they say, well, I think things would be better in five years. Well, what about three? Oh, I think things could be better in three years. And to me, that's the ultimate point is as long as you're not uh, forced into selling um, securities when they're down temporarily, no permanent harm can be done. All we have to do is wait for it to get better. And, and I think what Ryan said earlier, it's there's no light or bell that goes off when things are getting better. It's just a little less dark than it was yesterday. And again, but also, <clears throat> it's really a different world because this is what some people call a supply-induced recession, <clears throat> if we have one, because the job uh, rate is really low, unemployment's low. Uh, anyone can get a job by just walking out and knocking on a door, very likely, which is not the typical recession situation. So, again, we have the, the economy which seems to be, in one sense, doing well, but yet there's these uh, the threats on the horizon that are very, very serious. And in the aggregate, uh, the consumer, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, I tried to pull it for today, but I couldn't get back to it, uh, just highlighting how the consumer and businesses are feeling, you know, really pretty good relative to even a year ago, uh, which probably sounds strange if you listen to the 24-7 uh, news channels. But I was, I kind of did an update on my U.S. household debt uh, service as a percent of disposable income. And again, it has ticked up a little bit, but it's still at pretty much an all-time low, which means that uh, the consumer's balance sheet appears to be in really good shape. And then I wanted to check in on the U.S. T uh, total net worth, the balance sheet of households and nonprofit organizations. Again, it's at an all-time high at $150 trillion. So there's all these confusing things going on right now, a stock market that can't get out of its own way. Um, and then interest rates that are climbing, bond prices for the first time down in a meaningful way, probably first time in 40 years. I was looking at historical real returns on five-year treasuries just as an example, Fred, and you really have to go back to the 40s to mm -hmm. find a real net inflation return, one- or two-year return for five-year treasuries that are a little bit worse than what we have today. So this has been a pretty good shock to the bond market as well which I think has taken a lot of 401k investors by surprise maybe a little bit because most 401k investors have a portion of their uh, funds allocated to the great companies of America and the world, the stock market, and then some to the bond market. And they're used to that bond market being the ultimate stability factor. And if we're in one of the worst you know, bond bear markets uh, ever over a one or two year period, and that's really what we're, we're close. Uh, I think that's probably taken some investors by surprise, too. And I think that's causing a little bit of the, you know, the, look at Vanguard's 60-40 basic index portfolio is down about 17%. I mean, that's a lot for a balanced. That's, that's, a, that's not an outlier, but it's, you know, it's where you go to look how bad could it be. That would probably be the kind of return where you'd say, well, that's probably sort of as bad as it gets. It could get worse than that, but if I had to, pick a number that said, yeah, well, that's pretty painful for a 60% stock, 40% bond mm -hmm. portfolio. So there's a lot of adjustment going on right yeah. now. The other problem, too, is that uh, after something happens, it's probably too late to deal with it. Uh, everyone's talking about how do I invest with inflation? Well, buying inflation-adjusted instruments now is not necessarily a good deal because it's already uh, the price is already taking into account the uh, the high rate of inflation. So it's very difficult after the fact to, to actually insulate yourself. Right. And, we're gonna, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, about all the classic, what people think of as inflation hedges. And really, uh, when you if you dig deeper, in many ways, you find out a lot of them really aren't what we thought they were. But one thing I was actually kind of surprised to see today, Fred, I, I went to update my we talk about what what is the expected inflation rate in the marketplace, and the one way people do that is they look at the difference between a straight treasury, like a 10-year treasury, and a 10-year treasury inflation-protected securities. And if you net the two together, you kind of think that's what the bond market expects inflation to be. But a couple months ago, it was a little bit north of 3% on a 10-year basis, Fred, and as of today, it's about 2.5%. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. And then in the five years, it's dropped from about 3.6% expected inflation over the next right. five years now to about 29 right. so almost three-quarters of a percent. Yeah, uh, most, I don't know what to make of that or, or if I yeah. should make anything of it, but it's the bond yeah. market 
is in the bond market could be wrong, but the bond market saying, hey, maybe inflation isn't as bad a few years yeah. out as we think it's Well, I think that's the belief of the Federal Reserve and also a lot of people who follow the Federal Reserve. Uh, even though the inflation rate appears to be 7 or 8 percent, uh, they believe – and you know, six months ago, they, they believed it would fall back to 2 percent. Now the belief is it will probably fall back to 4 percent or so. So, again, it's still going to be above the 2 percent target, but it's not going to be 8% like we have. So there, there is some, not good news, but good, uh, potential good news there that it's not going to be a, a permanent 6 or 7 or 8% inflation rate. And it's clear to me that uh, Fed Reserve Chairman Powell is means what he says and is saying what he means. Uh, I think he's out to whip inflation. And, yeah. and, and I think this one of the things that's scaring the stock market is in the past, uh, people may have heard something called the Fed put, the Federal Reserve put, which said, oh, you know what, the Federal Reserve kind of monitors asset prices, too. And if the stock market falls enough, they'll get in there and support the stock market. And I think it's largely sort of true. Uh, and now the big concern is that put's gone away or it's a lot lower because the Fed is really focused. But at the end of the day, guys, isn't the cure better than the disease of inflation? Is I, I think everybody's really concerned right now, yeah. but I guess I'm less concerned because right. I, I'm realistic in, in the sense that I'm saying, well, yeah, they're giving it really strong medicine, but right. it's, it's the medicine that's going to cure this thing. And ultimately, that's what gets us on the permanent uptrend, the long-term permanent uptrend. Yeah, and it's also a, a difficult period. Uh, there's Some people look at a political business cycle, and usually, uh, uh, if you're the president, you want the Fed to raise interest rates during an uh, election situation now. And uh, they're doing that, so that it shows that you really do have some resolve. I think they do, and I think that's what's worrying the stock market. Uh, let's see, a text. Uh, isn't the best way to fight inflation to stop or slow down on buying things? Reigning interest rates, I think they mean reigning in, interest rates is the best way to spark a recession. Well, the Fed is trying to cool demand down. Is it not, Fred? Is it in some ways yeah. that simple? Well, the, 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 Higher interest rates are a necessity, and the, and the question is, can you walk this fine line? The goal of the Fed would be to have what's called a soft landing, uh, uh, reduce the rate of inflation at the same time not uh, uh, precipitating a recession. And that's not easily uh, done, so that's what they're trying to do. But whether they do it or not is going to be uh, – uh, open questions, but they, they can't do it without raising interest rates. Well, I noticed the tax revenues going into the Treasury are at an all-time high. I mean, they're exploding, and yeah. I'm wondering, why is anybody talking about raising taxes? Yeah. When we're also talking about the risk of recession. Uh, yeah. That's that's flooring me a little bit, that the more frequent calls for raising taxes when yeah. we have massive inflows. Uh, yeah, even the state of Illinois is doing well, and uh, California is doing fantastically well in terms of, <laughs> of tax revenue. I read where individual tax receipts, income tax receipts, were up 31% higher than they were uh, for 12 months, ended April 21. Uh, and the increase had really had nothing to do with higher taxes. It's just everything to do with strong gains, I think, in an employment. Yeah, well, I think it's more uh, uh, taxation of, of capital gains at the the filing period was April 15th, and so people had to pay taxes on their capital gains from last year. So that, that was a, a big generator of revenue. So inflation hedges, guys, um, and, and I, I have it here somewhere, the ultimate inflation. Um, a lot of people wondering, particularly after the fact, about the inflation hedges that we think about. Um, the natural one, probably the one that's probably for some purposes the ultimate inflation hedge would be treasury inflation protected securities but even those have some caveats do they not i mean don't they have to basically i suppose they they insulate you from unexpected inflation in the future but in the meantime that would only seem to me as if you bought a treasury inflation protected security that matures at a point when you need that money but anywhere in between you could still suffer some in fact treasury inflation securities uh, uh protected securities have had their own bear market, and they're really not keeping up with inflation in the short run. But for the people that bought them originally and they hold them to maturity, they surely will. I think that's something that few people understand, that it's not the perfect hedge, it appears to be, but there's, there's more to the story than you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's better than a lot of the alternatives that people will talk about and we're going to talk about on the show, you know, the common ones you hear about gold and things like that. Um, but it, as you said, it's not totally perfect if you're planning on withdrawing the money before the, 
the bond matures essentially because there is fluctuation in the price of treasury inflation protected because there's securities. fluctuation in real interest rates exactly so you have a bond that has a particular locked in real interest rate of maybe if you bought one a year ago it might be minus one percent a year you're guaranteed to lose one percent a year except you'll keep that minus one percent you know inflation adjusted so you're only going to lose the one percent you're not going to lose more than that due to inflation yeah, so I, I think that's the main issue. But generally speaking, they're honestly, I think probably the best inflation hedge out there or hedge for the other thing that's important to differentiate is inflation versus unexpected inflation. Don't and talk I think, about it. You know, if you look at just stocks, regular stocks and like nominal bonds, expected inflation theoretically should be kind of incorporated into the price of stocks and bonds and kind of the expected return of stocks and nominal bonds should over time exceed the rate of inflation, at least historically. That's how things have played out. For, for a small investor, there's kind of a free lunch with the I-bonds. You can buy 20000 a couple could buy $20,000, and the uh, principal would, would never go down, and you get guaranteed the, like right now, 7 or 8% return, but that, that's not going to protect a, a large portfolio. For sure. That, that's kind of been the limitation there is they're getting a ton of attention just, you know, if you – read any sort of financial news outlets or things um, because right now there is almost that it's like a disconnect that you know regular bond interest rates have they've increased but they're definitely not in the seven to eight percent range i bonds you know over the next six months or i think it might even be like nine percent over yeah. the next six months um, the way i think of it is okay that's kind of like a short-term disconnect so right now yes i bonds are by far the best deal the issue that people have is going through the Treasury Direct, <laughs> direct yeah. website is yeah. a little bit of a pain. And the limit on the amount, too. And then the limit on the amount. So it's like, well, if you have $5 million and you want you know 40% of your money in bonds, you know that's it's hardly going to move the needle buying ten dollars or $20,000 worth of I-bonds. So the combination of that and then the clunkiness of the Treasury Direct website has led some people to just say, ah, I'm just not going to mess with the I-bonds. What about short-term, uh, just straight nominal bonds? I mean, I, I've anybody who's listened to the show for 30-plus years knows that I've always wanted to keep maturities high, very high quality and very short in nature, and that's what we do. Um, wh what's the inflation benefit from shorter-term bonds as opposed to longer-term bonds? Well, again, like if you look at just normal nominal bonds, they're not you know Treasury inflation-protected bonds or anything. Historically, they've outpaced inflation by a little bit, you know, and depending on the maturity, it's probably going to, you know, impact how much they've outpaced inflation and credit quality and things like that. But the nice thing about the shorter bonds is they're going to adjust more quickly. So as interest rates rise, typically, you know, if inflation is increasing, interest rates are going to increase over time, you know, maybe yeah. not instantly as we've seen, but over time, theoretically, interest as they rates are will now. rise. And with the shorter-term bonds, you're going to be trading up into these higher interest rate bonds more quickly. As your you know your shorter-term bonds mature, now we can take that money, we can reinvest in a new shorter-term bond with a higher interest rate. And his, again, just historically speaking, if you look at those really short-term, just nominal bonds, they've historically outpaced inflation and been a pretty decent inflation hedge over time. For instance, yeah, for like if you look at that really bad period, 1966 to 82, we always talk about risk-free treasury bills outperformed inflation, so they had a higher return than inflation. So, so short-term securities, what about commodities? Um, I, we've never been a big promoter of them. Um, what's your guys' take on that is the pros and the cons of, of adding that to a portfolio? I think when we look at commodities, we, we always kind of fall back on, well, what is a commodity? And, and it, is, it is a tangible good. It's not a business that's producing incomes. Um, it's not producing any anything. It's just, are you willing to pay something now in exchange for this good? Um, and there's some, I think, you know, weak evidence that in certain, in certain time periods that, you know, holding commodities could be advantageous, but it's not like persistent through time. Um, so I know just as our general strategy, we don't, we don't incorporate commodities into client portfolios for that reason. We're, we don't want to, you know, try to take the guesswork and say, well, we're just going to hope that this is going to be one of those times where it actually does add to return or doesn't detract from it as much as some other um, investment might. 
So we just and, avoid. And I know if you look at like the correlation between a lot of commodities and inflation, there is a little bit of a correlation there, but it's not really that that high and it's not super reliable. It's not something you can rely on because commodities are so volatile. And like there, there are a numerous times in history where you've seen periods with negative commodity returns and high inflation. In fact, over so long just, periods, it's a negative real return. So they're, they're just not an effective inflation hedge because they're way too volatile. They're 20 times more volatile than inflation. So you're, unless your objective really is to increase the volatility of your portfolio. So there's some, there's some caveats. Uh, we're going to go to Mike on line one. Yes, Mike. Hi there. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick point. You've been talking about I-bonds, and I actually had called couple months ago about them, but yesterday I went ahead and opened a Treasury Direct account and uh, invested at I-Bonds, and everybody's talked about how cumbersome it is, and it's a little time-consuming, but from beginning to end, it only took me about 20 minutes to complete the whole process. You have more um, patience than most people, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm retired. <laughs> well, I understand. <laughs> I may, that may be part of it, but literally, we'll talk to people, and sometimes they'll call us back. Maybe it's an age thing at some points, or you know, or techno- how technologically savvy you are if you're used to doing things online. Well, yeah, and the thing that was different about it, you know, they have to do the verification of your identification or of who yes. you are and all that, and so you pick up you pick a, uh, an image to confirm that it's your account and you, you pick a password. But then when you're done, they say, check your email to log in for the first time. And they give you your account number and then they give you a different password, uh-huh. which seems counterintuitive, but you go ahead and log in with the different password. Well, that proves that it is indeed you because you got the email Sure, and then then your other password works just fine. But the, the investment, you know, you have to put in your bank information and all that if you want to, you know, transfer it directly. And, uh, yeah, it worked out pretty well. And do one for my wife when I, when I get home. So. That's good feedback. And, uh, again, I think that's a good way to frame it, Mike. Uh, it's probably a better way to think of it. It's not instant. It might take you 20 minutes, but it's achievable. Uh, I have the, yeah. the negative side. Uh, I did it for, for me and my wife. Uh, mine went through all right. My wife ended up having to fill out a form ticket to get it to the bank to get a uh, medallion, medallion, and then send it. I remember off. you saying that, yeah. And uh, we still haven't gotten back the thing. So, oh my goodness! So no. you're you're lucky. Oh. I guess you might want to check the uh, yeah. do not fly list, Fred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything well, else, Mike? Know, oh, I, ahead. Yeah, I will mention uh, when you get to that point about picking your image. Um, it has a thing that says "Show more images" if you don't like their little images. So I clicked show more images, and that dumped my application. Oh, wow. So oh, I, I thought, okay, it must, it's probably my browser or something. And then it said the site wasn't available. But it was because I just went back to yeah. the beginning, you know, refilled it out. But I didn't click for more images. I just chose one that was on the first page, and everything worked fine. So Got it. That's well, it. Thanks, guys. Well, I appreciate the feedback. All right, thanks. So, you know, I-bonds are an option, but it's only – it's not – it's going to help at the margins. It's not. I don't want to discount them as a, a, a valuable investment. I'm just saying they're not going to well, change the needle too much. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but the more and more I've thought about them, uh, I've just come to the conclusion there's. it's not that they're this magical investment that's going to be way better than all the other fixed income alternatives over a really long period of time. Over the next six months, sure, that is the case. Um, but if you look at I-bonds right right now that what is it the guaranteed fixed rate portion of the interest right. rate is, is zero. zero so you're basically signing up for i'm going to get the rate of inflation as my return which there's nothing inherently wrong with that and that's kind of nice in some in some regards but as i mentioned if you look at just nominal bonds whether it's corporate or government bonds historically they've actually exceeded they've provided a positive inflation adjusted return so i think you know the i bonds are more of a there's this short-term disconnect where they look really, really attractive right now because they are, but it's not that they're this way more attractive fixed income investment than other alternatives over someone's lifetime. I have a question to uh, David and Ryan uh, going back before the call. Uh, again, I don't think commodities are a good option, but if you wanted to do it, how does a small investor get in the game? With commodities, yes, I, there are commodities funds now. So there's you know different 
exchange traded funds and you know you can buy broad ones that own multiple different types of commodities or focus in a specific one or there's buy oil uso i'm not recommending it and they take care of all this stuff about coming due and you're not going to get a a bunch of eggs delivered to your house they're they're just they're (laughs) just mutual funds open-ended or they're exchange traded funds where you're just getting a net asset value and it's a play on the on the underlying yep. commodity market. And there's I, energy, there's, uh, you know, you could segment it all you want. And I think the most common one that you hear is gold, as far as the inflation hedge. And people think, oh, if we think inflation is going to be high, so we should go out and buy gold. And again, it's just not, a, it, there's not a reliable enough relationship between gold returns and inflation for it to be a reliable inflation hedge. So you can't make that that comment or claim that, because inflation is high right now, gold returns are going to be. Oh, there's lots of periods where, relative to inflation, gold has a quite negative return. I mean, all right. you have to know is that there are these periods that says it's not just a no-brainer inflation hedge. It's a lot more complicated than that if you do the research. And the other thing, once again, it's another commodity where you're forget. Don't forget, inflation is a very it's a low volatility beast, and trying to cure a, a, an inflation rate that probably has a a variance of one percent in any given year with something that has a volatility of twenty or thirty or forty times higher than that, just to me doesn't even make any theoretical sense. Well, and maybe this is the millennial in me, but I feel like while we're on this topic, we should mention cryptocurrency because oh, I yeah. think you will often hear one of the rationales for owning cryptocurrency is that it's an inflation hedge because there's yeah. you know the fixed number of bitcoins. Right. Um, but how's that working out? It, that well, that's that's my <laughs> point and. The point is exactly what we just talked about is cryptocurrencies are so extremely volatile inherently they just cannot be an effective short term or even intermediate term inflation hedge. Well, and all you have to do is look at literally right now where inflation has increased substantially and Bitcoin's down what like 50% from its peak or something yeah, like that. Maybe 60, it's pretty close. Uh, it was in the 60,000s and now I last looked it's in the upper 20s. So, uh, you know, if you were looking at, no, if you bought it on the first day of crypto, you're so rich that inflation isn't going to matter. But for people <laughs> right, that right. Johnny come lately, and, and I just, I read an article the other day that said they calculate that 40% of people that are invested in crypto are underwater, have yeah. a loss to show for it. So again, there's, there's none of these are, are no brainers. Um, they're, they're, what about growth stocks versus value stocks, which now we're starting Look, we took we took our lumps when value growth stocks were doing a lot better than value stocks, but now in this environment and in inflationary environments, I don't know that you can draw such you know any super strong conclusions that if you invest in value stocks, you're going to do better because of inflation. But there is some at least anecdotal uh, work there that shows that in past periods of inflation they kind of have. But I don't want to talk out of two sides of my mouth and make it sound like it's that strong, but. Certainly, this year is a good example of the, the kind of the difference, and it and it may not even be inflation that's that's explaining it. But I saw that the Vanguard Value Index, which is just a, you know an index of stocks that are all tilted towards value, are down around five percent this year versus Vanguard's Growth Index that's down thirty percent. That's a that's a big spread between value and growth, and again. A lot of Johnny Come Latelys that got into the tech sector, or the growth sector, because it was doing so well over that last X block of time, now probably have significant losses to show for those purchases. And that, and that was everybody buying into like the you know the Fang stock craze. You know, we talked about I think last time Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google, um, and just buying up. You know, where the NASDAQ was overpriced significantly relative to other asset classes, jumping in late, like you're talking about, and now saying, oh, gosh, you know, I bought in at high waters. Now what? Do I sell? Do I stay invested? And I I fear that probably more people who are buying in late are probably the ones more likely to sell rather than hold and and see what the next decade or plus will will deliver to them. You know, the way I think of it with value stocks is there's good reasons to hold value stocks all the time. It's because historically value stocks have delivered higher returns than than growth stocks given, you know, a relatively long time frame. There's high odds that that will be the case. Um, But it's not this reliable relationship that, oh, because inflation is going to be high over this period, it's a guarantee that value stocks are going to do better than growth stocks. So you want to avoid trying to time these things and 
switch your allocation from growth stocks to value and stocks. We're about to take a call from Zoe, but when we get back, I kind of want to tie all that together and say, okay, so what are investors to do? We, we kind of haven't talked about, I mean, we haven't talked about international stocks yet, but maybe I want you to, guys to tie it all together saying really what you want are multiple factors or these things working at the same time. But we're going to go to Zoe on line one. Zoe, good morning. Oh, good morning. <laughs> I kind of think I know what you guys are going to say maybe, but I want to Are we that predictable? Real oh. estate. Well, <laughs> real estate mutual funds, and especially for somebody that doesn't have much of anything to invest, and I, I kind of know what you're going to tell me, but I just think about it sometimes because I don't own any real estate, and I think, gee, would I want to dabble in it a little bit or to have you know, a, a good mutual fund in that? And I wonder if you talk about that. Yeah, because that's part of our component, Dave or Ryan. Right. Why don't you guys kind of talk amongst yourself about how people might – think view that asset class and how they might utilize it sure so like real estate we look at is just uh an asset class that doesn't move in lockstep with stock exposure so the goal is not to say that we're timing anything of any way no one can time the market or try to to per like perfectly pick asset classes that work in opposition to each other so you have like this perfect smooth ride but the goal is just maybe to reduce fluctuation or volatility and potentially add a little return to the portfolio in the process. So for us as, as a firm, we just decided, well, 4 or 5% roughly is approximately what we try to keep a consistent holding to, regardless of any type of market conditions we're in. Um, and it's not a, a bet on where things are going. It's just a permanent allocation. Uh, Dave, what Yeah, that's you? exactly right. So I would just say it can be a good diversifier for an investment portfolio. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind is if you use just like normal index funds, like if you have a Vanguard total, REIT. yeah, like oh. a Vanguard total stock market index fund, for example, right, that probably has three or four percent of its allocation to REITs, which are these real estate companies that that stands for real estate investment trust REIT. When we say that, exactly. And so if you look at like a real estate mutual fund or exchange traded fund, the, the terminology they'll use is a REIT fund or a REIT ETF. Well, if you already own three or four percent of you know, your, if three or four percent of your money is already invested in REITs, you may not necessarily need to go out and buy a specific real estate fund to add additional exposure. Now you, again, like Ryan said, there's no magic percentage. You can't predict exactly what the perfect portfolio is going to be. Um, so there's nothing wrong with having a higher real estate exposure. Especially Zoe mentioned that she doesn't partic- she doesn't have real estate that sticks out. So maybe someone like that could have a little more exposure through the public markets in a real estate mutual fund like that. Exactly. So you just have to decide, well, what percentage of my money do I want invested in real estate? And then see, well, do I already own some in the funds that I own currently? And, and it's do not, I want more? And maybe not, you do, maybe you don't. Sorry. It's not particularly tax efficient, so we do have to watch out for that. You guys want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so holding real estate in a, in a taxable account, for example, um, is going to be very difficult for you from a tax perspective because I think it's 90% of the income out of these real, real estate investment trusts, REITs, are required by law to be paid out every year um, to the the holders, these owners. So if you hold that particular REIT in a taxable account, you're going to realize significantly higher gains compared to the same person who holds that same dollar amount in a REIT in an IRA or a 401k, for example, where all of the income is going to be deferred until you make a withdrawal out of those accounts. So it's a simple de- uh, a simple asset location decision. You put the real estate, those tax inefficient holdings, in those deferred retirement accounts rather than a taxable account just to keep taxes down. And those distributions from the REIT funds are ordinary income, too. So they're taxed as uh, ordinary income, which is just higher rates than, you know, if you had, you know, a a U.S. stock exchange-traded fund, probably the majority of the dividends are qualified dividends, if not, you know, probably 98% plus. How do you count uh, people's own ownership of really like their house and so on. I think you talked about reverse mortgages last time. In a sense, that's an asset as well. Mm-hmm. I usually don't um, let that influence the real estate allocation decision just because I, I don't know. There's This is where there's differing opinions in the financial advisor community. But I just think of your house as not so much that we're doing this for investment purposes. We're not renting it out. It's a single property it's like that's not really the same thing as diversified real estate exposure to thousands and thousands of 
you know, real estate properties across the globe. It, but it is potentially a store of investment value if you use it in, through a reverse mortgage or something like that. For sure. Zoe, is there anything else you'd like us to answer? Well, I'm assuming if I have most of my money in the S&P 500, um, you know, um, that that's, that's going to have real estate exposure too. Am I right? I'm not 100% sure if they're what the re how much I, I would think it would be less in 500 yeah it'd be a lot okay. less so i wouldn't okay. think of i'm guessing just based on experience i'm guessing that it's pretty diluted to where you really right. couldn't make okay. any case for it yeah all right okay thank you all right good luck yeah everybody's searching out there for day ways to deal with kind of what's going on and again i think What's hard on investors, particularly in this environment, and Fred and I have been around a long time, is it's been a long time since our, st- our bond prices are falling at the same time as our stock prices. And depending on where you are on the maturity spectrum, you know, maybe as much or close to the amount of decline that the stock market's experiencing. And I think that's, that's certainly one of those things that it's much, it's not unprecedented. So if this is not a, this is different this yeah. time thing. And what I'm pointing out is, over the last 40 years, that largely has not been true. True. You also have to worry about stale values. Uh, for example, I suspect that uh, private equity is going to look really good compared to stocks uh, this quarter. And the reason is it because private equity is doing well is because the value is based upon some kind of a, a old assessment that uh, will take several cycles to get back to reality. Yeah, they're not priced every single day or, or yeah. even literally every second of every single day, so you can't necessarily see that. Um, you know, the thing I've been noticing, and this is a little broader than the inflation, but it's kind of related, is I've been noticing that people have been really tempted to try to predict the returns of specific a- asset classes. And they're making comments like, well, this is happening in the world, or I think this is going to happen in the world. Therefore, we should invest more money in this asset class and or less, less money in less. this asset class. And I think any time you try to make that type of a statement, you should it, should it should trigger in your brain that, okay, this is kind of a red flag because you should really question your ability to forecast or predict the returns of specific asset classes. Regard, you know, especially based on one specific factor that's going on. And I've just been noticing that more and more, whether it's inflation. It's, you know, well, inflation's going to be high. Therefore, I should invest more of my money in fill-in-the-blank, gold, value stocks, crypto, whatever, fill-in-the-blank. And then when you go and you look at the research and you go, oh, well, even though some of these may have a subtle correlation to inflation, it's not reliable. It's not a reliable – you can't reliably say – Inflation is high, therefore value stocks are going to outperform growth stocks, or um, you know gold is going to have strong returns. And you can't say um, you know there's a war going on in Ukraine, therefore international stocks are going to have lower returns. It's like the reason you can't make those types of statements and what people miss is that the market probably already reflects the fact that all of that is happening or that we have these expectations. And now going forward. The expected returns are really unknown. They're uncertain. So it's really the only thing that changes prices in the future are unknowns, are surprises. In other words, everything that's known by 7 billion overlapping minds is priced in, is basically being assessed simultaneously. And when you see the market price going by the screen, it's saying this is the world's best estimate of what the value of this particular asset class or company or, or whatever it is is. And to to have your own theory that I think, you know, the economy is going to be lower over the next six months or the next year, or just make it simple. We are going to have a recession sometime in the next 12 years. I'm sure of it. So therefore, it doesn't make sense to be in stocks. That's the one I think that's the easiest for people to kind of agree upon. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. If the economy is going to slow down, then corporate earnings are going to slow down. And if corporate earnings slow down, then people, then they're Stocks aren't going to be as valuable. Not only that, people may want to pay less for those earnings in a recessionary economy. But right now, what isn't, you know, if somebody can tell me what's going to surprise us, I could tell them what the price change might be. But outside of, you know, perfect knowledge of what's going to happen ahead of time, 
It's just not usable, or I, what I would call it's not meaningful information. It's information everybody in the world has processed already and made a conclusion that the market's probably worth somewhere around this yeah. valuation. And even if you know, it's hard to predict, like the COVID situation, I would have predicted a, a, a catastrophe for the uh, equity markets, but it didn't happen. Exactly. So, And I don't think people necessarily even realize the risks that they're taking when you start making investment decisions based on predictions. Because what ultimately ends up happening more often than not is you end up getting things wrong. You're probably selling out of something that's going to actually do better and buying into something that's going to do worse in the future. Or, you know, if you just look at the evidence, that's typically what happens. People end up with worse performance because they're trying to you know, tinker with their portfolio based on forecasts or predictions. And that goes for professional investors, too. Well, yeah, you hear, you hear them every day if you watch CNBC, you're going to get, you know, opposing uh, views. But isn't it really just humankind's way of saying, hey, I'm really kind of unsettled and, and, and worried right now and scared about my future uh, based on what's going on in front of my eyes, and therefore I feel the need to do something? Yes. I think ultimately that's what it is, and I think if there is, a, you know, a value to any good financial advisor, it's you just can't allow people to do that. You have to, you have to, I think, have empathy and understand why they feel the way they feel and acknowledge that they feel that way, and it's not stupid to feel that way. It just, you can't make an investment policy out of it, and you have to be firm. And, and I've told clients over the years, uh, we're always tempted as advisors to prove things, right? Well, here, well, no, let me pull out this chart and show you that things are going to be better. Or let me show you this graph. Or the, No amount of information. Historical will not, um, is not an antidote to hysterical, okay? Uh, so I think about the only thing, uh, now it's easier for me to do at age 62 after having 39 years in it. Sometimes the only thing I have to say to a client that wants to make a big mistake is, no, you can't do that. When they say, well, why not? It's because I say so. It's almost like a strong parent that says, well, why can't I run out in the street? Because I say so. Uh, it's dangerous and I can't let that happen. And the real burden on a financial advisor is sometimes clients will want to do things that we deem are very risky for, they, they may put their, uh, the next 10, 20 or 30 years of their life in financial peril and sometimes I will literally look at my clients right in the eyes and say, you can't do that because if I let you do that, I won't, when your kids come in and ask me why I let you do that, I won't have a good answer for them. And so therefore, we just can't do that. And sometimes I think it just feels like you're taking this like do nothing naive approach to investments when you're not making predictions and forecasts and shifting your investment allocation based on those predictions or forecasts. But I actually feel like it's the opposite because I feel like if you're shifting your investment allocation or your, you know, your asset allocation between different asset classes based on predictions or forecasts, and all evidence shows that you can't rely, no one can reliably do that, then the naive approach is to start making these investment decisions based on gut feelings or predictions or forecasts. It's like that's that's the naive approach because you're basically saying no, I, I think I can do this even though you know, hundreds well, and hundreds of thousands of other investors can't, even the ones with PhDs who spend literally all day following the market. So I have lived over the last 40 years in a world where that's become really obvious. And what I'm talking about is back in 1990, so that was a long time ago, might have been 91, um, I made the shift from trying to predict things and forecast things after some pretty smart people convinced me that that was not the best strategy and all the evidence shows that it's actually really a, not a good strategy at all. And so I began using passive mutual funds, or some people would call them today index funds. And that's way ahead of its time. And back then, um, Morningstar says, as of March 31st, retail investors now have $8.53 trillion invested in index mutual funds, why 8.34 trillion worth of assets are invested in actively managed funds. Back in 1993, uh, when, they, when they first began tracking it, it was <laughs> active funds had 60 times, there were $60 in professionally or actively, let's call it predicting, in the predicting business, $60 in the predicting business for every dollar in the index fund. And the index investors 
So one, I feel good about it because the world has definitely moved my way. I saw this three decades ago that that was the way to invest. And you know what that really says? That markets work and that things can't be predicted. And the evidence, maybe it's not charts and graphs and deep data, but people looked at their pocketbooks and said, wait a minute, why am I continuing to underperform in my professionally managed expensive mutual funds? There's Mr. Mower. <laughs> and there are things you can do. So, I mean, I think we could talk about, okay, well, what do we do in time periods like okay. this? Well, one, let's maintain our global diversification and make sure that the percentage that we have in stocks and bonds is still matching our targets. And if things have drifted at the big level of stocks versus bonds or the more micro level of specific asset classes, you can rebalance your portfolio. If you have money in a taxable investment account that you just invested recently, there's probably some unrealized losses in there. You could do tax loss harvesting. If you're in a low tax bracket and you were planning on doing some Roth conversions this year, you might accelerate that and do your Roth conversions now while the market's down 20%, just allowing you to move more shares over into your Roth IRA. So there are things that you can do. And then the last one, obviously, is review your financial plan and maybe adjust your portfolio withdrawal if necessary which, you know, so far, at least with our planning process, it really hasn't been necessary, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be if the market falls further. So there are things that you can do that actually have high odds of adding value, but tinkering with your portfolio based on forecasts, really, if anything, is going to actually detract value, not add value. Uh, Ed Bond was right. Ed Bond came in and said, you're going to say, Stick to your plan, and <laughs> yep. that's all we're saying. Well, we are, you know we are predictable. Uh, if nothing else, um, but I, I think that's that turns out to be a good thing. It, it turns out to be the only thing that matters is if you can be if you can remain diversified in all these factors, both growth stocks, value stocks, small companies. Uh, do this around the globe, internationally. You have real estate in your portfolio. You have all these different factors. Momentum. You might have profitability. All these different factors diversified in a portfolio are probably the only given enough time reliable inflation hedge that's ever been created and there's no guarantees on that one sorry folks i wish there were but it has a pretty good track record of saying look if you want ever wondered what the greatest inflation hedge in created by uh, created by the hands of humankind it's the ownership of the great companies of america and the world broadly diversified in all these different factors well, I hope that helps people today. There's a lot of bad news out there, but certainly things will get better. And, and before things get better in the economy, stock prices are going to be better well ahead of it. So just keep the faith, patience, and discipline, and everybody will be fine. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. We'll be back the second Tuesday of June. Can't believe it. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS. Paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.